welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention, and each month I chat with a distinguished researcher or practitioner. Today we'll be listening to a conversation with Dr. Jason Thompson, Senior Research Fellow, Melbourne School of Design in the University of Melbourne, in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, Jason. Hi, Rod. To give us a background to this uh, discussion, because I want to jump straight into talking about your paper, can you tell us a little bit what uh, Safety in Numbers is all about? Well, Safety in Numbers is kind of a theory that was put forward by a researcher um, by the name of Jacobson a few years ago, and it's become extremely popular. So, and it's extremely popular in my opinion, because I think a lot of people want it to be true. So they really, so safety numbers, we're talking about, uh, specifically, we're talking about cycling safety. So people really like the idea that the more cyclists that you have interacting in the transport system, the safer it becomes per capita for cyclists. Now, um, there's a whole discussion around why that is the case. And largely, it's been assumed that it's because, you know, uh, more drivers become cyclists. So then they start to appreciate the dangers of cycling a little bit more or the risks associated with that. Um, Drivers become more aware of cyclists and you get this virtuous um, cycle, if you like, where you have this sort of feedback mechanism happening and, you know, cycling becomes um, ever more safer and ever more popular and it just feeds upon itself. And this is the, this is the basic idea of safety in numbers. So you say people like that idea to be true. What do you uh, mean by that? Because in science, isn't it a case of it's objectively true or not? Um, we all wish it would be. The, <laughs> I think that there is... Uh, there's a bit of research around cycling, which is real, what I would describe as advocacy research. So these are things that I would suggest that people want to be true. And this is why I've become interested in the safety and numbers phenomenon over the last few years and have tried to test it out a little bit more and, and sort of see what's actually driving it because the assumptions around what's driving it have never... Well, they've, they've been rarely tested, or I'd say they've been poorly tested. Now, this article by Jacobson is extremely, extremely well cited. I think, you know, it has over a thousand citations. Um, and so people sort of plonk it into their, um, their strategies and plonk it into their research papers whenever they want to sort of, you know, sort of suggest that as cyclists, you know, as more cyclists come into the network, the safer it gets. And so it's just kind of a default go-to paper because it says the things that people want to say at that time. I'm less convinced that the mechanisms behind that are um, what it is that are suggested. And again, frankly, I don't think they've been tested very well. Okay, so as far as I understand your um, logic there, people who approve of cycling and believe there should be more cyclists uh, recognise this research as being supportive of that position. And so they accept the results of that research. But what scientists haven't done is try and understand the mechanisms that explain that phenomena 
nor do they really challenge the assumptions upon which the research has been based that's produced that outcome. Is that a fair summary of what you're saying? That's absolutely a fair summary of, of, of what we're sort of saying. And um, sometimes when we challenge it, people get upset with us because they think we're anti-cycling. And in fact, that's not the case at all. I'm massively pro-cycling, um, done a lot of cycling research and I ride a bike, you know, a lot myself and all of those sorts of things. But it's, it's a convenient thing for people to be able to write. It's an easy thing for people to be able to write in papers. And it's also um, the sort of thing that, well, why would you question it? Why would you want to rock the boat? Why would you want it to be not true? Or why would you want this to be untrue? Because it would... Um, it would actually sort of spoil your party a little bit. So, um, yeah, I think there's some very human reasons why people um, really have latched on to the safety in numbers and the mechanisms behind it and why they use it for the purposes that they do. And those things are also scientifically interesting, if, you know, as a psychologist, as, as I am. Um, because, you know, there's all sorts of biases, et cetera, associated with that. And, you know, at the end of the day, scientists are also um, human, so they're subject to the same biases as everyone else. Okay, Jason, so I understand some of the scientific um, gaps that you feel need to be explored, and you've given us a little bit of a taste of uh, the approach that you come to in this sort of healthy scepticism and uh, psychological biases of your own that you bring to this research. So what were the sorts of questions that you operationalized out of that? What did you, what were you hypothesizing and, and how did you go about doing a piece of research around this? I'll come to the methods you used in a minute, but uh, sure. I guess initially, um, what was your approach and, and your question? Well, our approach, and, and I don't want to delve too much into the methods yet, but our approach is really to, where we create a lot of, what we call artificial societies. And so these artificial societies live inside um, computers um, and they interact in ways in which we think um, that are all that are analogous, we would suggest to the real world. And so what we wanted to explore was whether this idea of safety and numbers held up um, under circumstances where there was absolutely no ability for actors within the system to learn to get used to cyclists, to appreciate them more, to stop being a driver and become a cyclist. So we wanted to remove any of those uh, psychological mechanisms that had been um, suggested as being core to the safety numbers phenomenon and simply replace them with a very um, plain spatial configuration of cyclists and cars and see if we couldn't reproduce the same sort of effects. Because if we could reproduce the same sort of effects, it might suggest to us that there was a, there was a perhaps more elegant um, way in which the safety numbers phenomenon could appear and in fact maybe that's what's really occurring it's really about a, a spatial mechanism um, rather than a, a psychological or a social mechanism both of those things could could be true but there's a there's a thing in in computational social science which is what I'm talking about here is that if you don't grow the phenomenon through your 
um, methods, you haven't really explained it. So we wanted to grow this phenomenon of, of um, safety and numbers effect in a very controlled way and without any of the uh, phenomena that had been explained by Jacobson as being the, um, the cause of the safety and numbers effect. Okay, so let's, let's now look at your methods because you've used a few terms there that those of us who are unfamiliar with this particular approach would, would want to question. So you grew this artificial society inside the computer. Yes. Uh, as opposed to observing how real people work with all of the noise and the mess in the, in the brains and the, and the emotional responses of real people. Uh, so the, the method you used, I understand, is agent-based modelling. Can you tell me a little bit about agent-based modelling in its sort of general sense and then how then you were able to use agent-based modelling as this laboratory where you're able to grow your own societies and what sort of variables you put into this model. Great. Yeah, I can, I can explain that. So agent-based modelling has been around for a little while, um, probably since about the late 80s when we started to interact a little bit more with, with computers. But, but what is uh, agent-based modelling is essentially a laboratory, as you described, Rod, where we can um, produce agents who have goals, they have, um, they can um, understand their immediate environment, um, but they all live inside a computational artificial environment. So we can create these agents to be anything. Um, and we can, and they almost, almost like in a, in a, um, uh, in a computer game environment, they're interacting with that um, uh, artificial environment. So as a, a cyclist within this environment, it might be traveling on a road, it might be able to see other cyclists around it, it might, if there's a cyclist on its right and it was a bit too close, it might move a bit left. Um, if there was one on the left, it might move a bit right again. If there was a car approaching, it might have a rule around the way in which it, 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 it interacted with cars. If there was a car straight in front of it, it might try to stop. Um, whereas the cars in this environment, Bit like a computer game again um, the cars would be able to see cyclists in the environment if a cyclist was coming along it um, on its right hand side it might decide to stop and give way to that cyclist it might give way to other cars so you can create these very defined rules um, about the way in which people interact in this in this environment and you can control those rules um, but you can and you can always add in more rules but you can always make sure that some rules don't exist. So there are some things that they perhaps can't do. Um, so we can set up these electronic laboratories and we can test out a lot of assumptions. We can keep adding things in, but importantly, we can also take things away. Now, in the work that we did for uh, in the um, in the study in injury prevention, we we did both things. So we had a series of about three studies where we created this artificial laboratory, we made these agents, so cyclists and cars, and sometimes we can use, you know, we, we model pedestrians as well, or we model um, motorcycles or anything else that we, we might think is interesting. But um, we, we 
we modelled that um, environment. Um, but then what we did, and which was different about this study, was that we, we got some criticism from our previous work demonstrating that you could have and uh, uh, you could demonstrate the safety in numbers effect um, reasonably easily without any of additional psychological variables and without using real people. But what we did in this study was that we then went out to the real world and we tested some of our assumptions about spatial configuration in the real world. And we were able to sort of see that in the real, the real world reflected the way in which the artificial society acted very, very closely. So this was an, a validation exercise between what we saw in the artificial society and the artificial laboratory. We then went out and looked for that phenomenon in the real world and found that yes, we we could we could see that phenomena in the real world as it as it acted in the artificial society. And so this was a uh, a, a neat way of validating the, the agent-based model. Okay, so let's jump straight to the chase and look at what you found. You've coined a term in this paper you published with us that you haven't uh, referred to yet. Safety in numbers was the prevailing um, concept. You've talked here about safety and density, and it seems to yes. me that this is actually what your research has found. Can you tell me a little bit about safety and density and what it was that it demonstrated that made you think of this as the um, characterizing term for what you found? Yeah, so we make it, we draw a distinction between safety and numbers. So what you might describe as the aggregate number of cyclists within a system and safety and density, which is the um, the gap or the time gap between two or more cyclists who are travelling in the same um, area. So uh, to explain, so you might have, let's say you have um, a thousand cyclists across a very small town, but if they're all if they're all cycling by themselves and they have a say a 30 second gap between people or between between themselves and the next cyclists we would say that it provides very little um, uh, protection for those cyclists based on on um, safety and density because cars can still move in between those two cyclists so there's a gap between cyclists that means that cars can still slip in and out between them they can still you know, decide to give way or not give way, etc. Whereas if those same thousand cyclists were travelling in groups of two or three, and those and the the gap between the cyclists was of in the order of around about say two seconds or three seconds. So cyclist comes past, another one comes past, and the other one comes past. You would have a much greater safety of the total um, cyclists in the system because the way in which they were spatially configured meant that a car would treat that as a group or as a small peloton. It wouldn't treat them as individual cyclists. So you're reducing what we would describe as the surface area to volume um, sort of ratio. So of, of uh, a predator, the cars, to the um to the cyclists and that means as you get in by the same in biological systems or herding of of sheep or flocking of birds or that sort of stuff or, or fish you get a safety benefit from decreasing the surface area to volume ratio of that small peloton which results in um, a, a safety benefit so when we so we get this in the artificial environment if we get 
clusters of cyclists together. We have a car who might want to give way to the first cyclist. Because we've got a cluster of cyclists behind them, um, it has to give way to the first one, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, maybe the tenth. Um, and then all of that group goes by and then the car might um, continue on its path. So that's the density. That's the important part about the density. If all those cyclists were spread out, you might have the same number, but you don't get the safety benefit because they're not densely packed enough. So the car can slip in between the two or it can sort of decide, oh, am I going to go or am I not going to go? And so what we found was that there was a uh, the, the gap time waiting for cars trying to slip in between um, uh, cyclists was around about four seconds. So at around about four seconds, people weren't quite sure whether they should go or not. And that was quite tricky for um, uh, for cars to negotiate. So at four seconds, cars might go, they might not go. You've got a 50% chance of a car pulling out in front of you at about four seconds. Um, and But anything less than that, you started to get into the, the, a point where if you were following another cyclist in front of you at less than four seconds, it was quite likely that you would be almost protected by the fact that the cyclist in front of you had already was already in front of you. And so a car wouldn't try to get between you um, and the cyclist in front of you. So you were, you were in fact in this small, uh, densely packed um, peloton and you got a safety benefit from that. So this starts now to explain some of the comments you made earlier, I think. If I can try and capture that, you talked of safety in numbers being an effect that was due to drivers learning to understand the fact they had to share the road and to be more tolerant of the fact that there were cyclists on the road who had their own rights and, and responsibilities. As the numbers of cyclists increased, that learning of the driver became more obvious. This is the safety in numbers approach, is that right? Yes. That's right. And your approach is quite different because it's not so much a sympathy of the driver to the cyclist because they see more cyclists. It's more a practical issue, a logistics and engineering issue of defined by spatial distances and times as to how they can interact with the one bike or multiple bikes that's producing the answer. That's right. And and so you can you could totally remove any empathy for drivers to cyclists and get exactly the same result so you can get a safety in density effect or a safety you know what most people would call a safety numbers effect without any consideration of your know, driver's mentality or attitude towards cyclists at all you can still get the same effect if you have a a, a, a fairly densely um uh, populated pelotons but it's it's purely a spatial effect now, that is not to say that um, drivers who become cyclists or drivers who get used to cyclists around them or appreciate cyclists a little bit more or, or whatever it might be, that is not to say that that phenomenon could not also add to this effect. But And we have also in our agent-based models implemented learning algorithms within, within drivers um, so that, that we can demonstrate that this phenomenon might also be a contributor as well. But what we are saying is that it's, it's, it's not necessary for it to occur. You can get exactly the same um, effect without having to have any psychological empathy or anything. I mean, it's, it's quite feasible. Uh, I don't know where you know, listeners might be from, but I, I, it's not like that with more cyclists coming into the system, you see any 
less complaints about cyclists, you know, taking up the roads or anything like that. So, you know, anecdotally, you don't really sort of see uh, a great deal of empathy towards cyclists, the more cyclists that there are. But, um, uh, and so, yeah, we're suggesting that you can get it purely spatially. Okay, so let's close the book on that and move into a slightly wider conclusion. If we're thinking about the cutting edge of injury prevention research, where we can start to take some new methods you know, into injury prevention that have been applied elsewhere and try and find new ways of redressing the problem, which is still a persistent problem in the world. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of agent-based modelling? Um, just briefly, in terms of its application to other areas other than the one that you've identified in this paper. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I suppose agent-based modelling is an extremely flexible modelling approach. And what it allows you to do, or what it allows the, the researcher to do, is to test ideas in a virtual laboratory that they may not be able to do practically. Um, very easily. It doesn't preclude you from going out into the real world and testing things in the real world, but what it does allow you to do is, is um, and this sounds like a, a bad thing to say, but I'm going to say, I'll say it anyway, play around with concepts, play around with theories and see how they might play out in the real world especially the interaction of individuals at a, and a broader society. I think especially in injury research, we think very much about individual behaviour, individual actions, individual risk-taking, etc. What especially agent-based modelling allows you to do is to think about the individual in the context of the society or the individual's interactions with other people around them and how that translates into broader society as well because agent-based models are exceptionally good at understanding interactions with people or being able to explore interactions among people. So if you are interested in attitudes about safety, if you are interested in people becoming injured and then moving through a hospital system and how they might interact with that hospital system, if you're interested in how people might interact or you know with an injury insurance system, anything to do with interactions, agent-based models are exceptionally good at um, using to to both explore phenomena and to theorise. And then, as we've demonstrated in this paper, you can take that theory and then it allows you to look at things, well, this, we might, if we go to the real world, we might actually find this phenomenon. We might be able to see it in the real world and no one's really looked for it in the real world before. And lo and behold, there the phenomenon exists and you can sort of say, okay, well, our observations um, were driven by a theory which we created in an artificial environment using agent-based modeling and it helps to drive the, um, I drive the, the science forward. Well, thank you, Jason, for that wonderful account, both of your paper, but also for your insights into where we could take some of the methods you've used uh, across the field of injury prevention. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Rod. Thank you. We've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Jason Thompson from the University of Melbourne. For anyone wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've covered, in particular, anyone wishing to read the paper, that we discussed. I would encourage you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the Injury Prevention Podcast on your favorite platform or app and have it automatically downloaded to your device each month. <music>